Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Gruen. But first, what's got your attention, Harlan? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about an article that came out that was taking a look at, at physical activity and risk. And well, you exercise every day, don't you, Howie? I do. And there's a lot of evidence that people who exercise, stay active, you know, do better than people who don't. But but there's another thing that you can explore, which is among people who don't exercise very much, doesn't make any difference whether they take a few minutes to run up the stairs or, you yeah, know, bursts. Like, yeah. Bursts of, bursts of activity. People are talking a lot about this. And you may know that there's a great interest in this high intensity training idea, which is, you know, and, and that's really more about 10 or 15 minutes where you're, you know, you're, you're, doing interval training or what they call to bottom where you're kind of going really hard and then taking a brief rest and going yeah, really and, hard. And, and for a long time, like you see people making these pitches about like, all you need to do to get rid of all your belly fat is three minutes a day or five. And so it always sounded like just charlatans on TV. So I've been very excited about this too. Yeah, I think this hit thing, this high intensity training actually might be real, but, but this study that came out and then Listeners know that I'm a big fan of this UK biobank, which is you know, this yeah. large study of, of ultimately like about 500,000 people in the UK where these people volunteered and provided a ton of information and in many cases blood and other samples and undergone imaging. It's created this large database, which is available to researchers around the world. And people continue to mine this database to try to create a new knowledge that can help us. And, and, and a group of investigators took a look at the UK biobank group and said, let's take a look at people who don't exercise. Let's, let's try to focus on them. And let's ask this question, whether or not these short bursts of activity, but they're not like exercise, like running up the stairs for a minute or two, or like yeah. you're walking across the street and you want to get across the crosswalk and then you, you zip across, you know, you kind of have this extra, you know, bounce in your step to get that done. Does that make any difference? And what they did in, in the UK biobank was at, at, at some point after they had already started they gave people a wearables you know something that that would a sensor that would go on their wrist and they did that had them wear it for about a week so these individuals were um being being monitored so many studies were sort of asked people like hey do you do this do you do that and, and people have trouble recalling or maybe they're a little ashamed to say they're not moving or whatever they're doing so it turns out that this is really elevating our research in this area because we're actually using direct measurements of people using basic devices that they're wearing on their wrists. And, and those are giving us some sense of, of what's going on. So that, this was pretty interesting. And then the other thing about the UK Biobank is they collect a ton of information. So we know that somebody who might zip across the street might have other factors, other things about them, including their age and other conditions about them, which might be influencing their ability to do something like that. So when you're going to study and try to isolate something like that activity, you've got to take that all into account. So, so they were able to do that. They studied about 25,000 people and then followed them up for about seven years. And during that time, there were 852 deaths that, that occurred. So 25,000 people, 850 deaths. So overall, not, you know, still a, a minority of people had that happen. But they, they took a look and they said, compared to people, again, these are non-exercisers generally. But among those people who had none of these kind of, you know, intermittent, rapid one or two minute you know, bursts of, of activity, they looked. And so compared to those who, who were engaged in it to those who didn't engage in it, maybe saying like three bouts a day, they had a 
38 to 40% lower risk of all cause and cancer mortality, and almost a 50% lower cardiovascular mortality. Now, again, sometimes in papers like this, they say it reduced. It didn't, we don't know if it reduced, but we can say that people who had this had much lower risks of mortality. And then they, they looked at it in other groups. They said, well, let's look at people who actually do exercise. And how does that correlate? And, and again, you know, they saw that a small amounts of vigorous, what they were calling non-exercise physical activity. This is like, you know, I'm running across the street, like I said, or you're, you're, you're taking the stairs up two flights instead of the ele- elevator or escalator. And, and for those individuals, again, you know, that, that uh, this non-exercise physical activity was associated with a substantially lower amount of, of mortality as a result. So anyway, I was very interested in this. They showed up in Nature Medicine. It was, uh, it was quite, an, quite, I thought, an important one. It was reported in New York Times. Lots of people talking about it. That's fascinating. Yeah, thanks for summarizing that. So great, Howie. Let's pivot to the, our guest today. So we really interesting to talk about re- reading disabilities, and you, you, this is really a gem that you found, Jeff Gruen, to to join us today. Dr. Jeffrey Gruen is a professor of pediatrics and genetics at the Yale School of Medicine. His research focuses on learning disabilities such as dyslexia, language impairment, and speech sound disorder, and particularly the genetic foundations or origins of these conditions. His lab has identified DCDC2, a dyslexia gene cited by the journal Science as the fifth top breakthrough of 2005, and he leads many projects, including the Yale Genes Reading and Dyslexia, or GRAD study, which studies the genetics of dyslexia in Hispanic American and African American children. He also started the New Haven Lexinome Project, a six-year project investigating the reading and cognitive abilities of first-grade students to study aspects of genetics and reading and learning disabilities, and he now leads the new cross-disciplinary program on learning disabilities known as the Yale Program for Learning Disabilities Research. Professor Gruen is a member of the Learning Disabilities Research Center's consortium funded by the National Institutes of Health. He received his bachelor's and medical degree from Tulane University. He started his training at Yale in 1981 with an internship in pediatrics, followed by subspecialty training in neonatology and then research training in molecular genetics. First, let me just say welcome to you to the Health and Veritas podcast. And I want to start off by asking you to explain to our listeners how it is that you're able to connect genes to a condition and then a condition to individuals. Tell, tell us about how that work occurs. Sure. Um, first of all, thanks for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. That's a great opening question. And let me bring it down to the family level. Families that have children with learning disabilities know that it runs in families. So when they contact me and they call me, one of the questions I'll ask them is who else in the family is struggling with reading or struggling with language. And inevitably, they'll say, how did you know? And, it, and, and But it's been known that learning disabilities run in families for at least 100 years. But the connection to genes really wasn't made until really the 70s when folks began to look at twin studies. And so preceding molecular genetics were twin studies where people would compare outcomes between non-identical twins and identical twins. And intuitively, you can understand that identical twins share 
100% of their genome, and non-identical twins share about half. And so if concordance is higher, that is if both kids are affected more frequently in identical twins than non-identical twins, then it makes sense that the reason is it's because of their genome. It's because of the genes that they inherit. What's not so clear to families is that it's not the kind of inheritance that you would expect that we learned in high school. It's not Mendelian genetics, so it's not dominant, it's not recessive. It's actually all the above. And the reason is because reading disability or dyslexia or language impairment are polygenic. That is, they're caused by multiple genes and an environmental factor. And so it, it, it is such that, it, in fact, from genetics, you can determine risk, but you can't determine diagnosis. So the best we can do is risk. But the data and the foundation are those twin studies. I wanted to break this down. I got some rapid fire questions for you just to kind of set the, the tone, because, you know, maybe Howie's more sophisticated than I am about this kind of stuff. And I, I want to just get to some of the basics. So what is dyslexia? So um, it's simply defined as difficulty learning to read in the presence of normal brain functioning. So normal IQ, no underlying brain disorder, and adequate opportunity to learn to read. And give me an example of some famous people who've had dyslexia. I think the most famous for our group, the most relevant would probably be Charles Schwab. So, <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. Uh, I've never met him, but I think he's done pretty well. And people say he's pretty highly affected. Aren't there some historic figures also who've said to have dyslexia? There, there are. You can see them on the web. I don't generally cite them because I don't think they've been formally tested. So what's the prevalence of dyslexia? How many, how many people have it? What, what's the rate of it? Yeah. So the range is, depending upon what study you look at, is somewhere between 7 and 20%. Wow. But it's really quite high. It's very high. I usually quote around 10% as sort of an average. Now, the reason why there's such a wide range um, is because it depends how you set the cutoff. So if you look at reading, if I look, if any of us looks at reading performance across a large number of children, let's say we look at across the, the 2,300 fourth graders in New Haven County, and we did any standardized reading assessment. Let's say we did comprehension in these fourth graders. We, what we'd get is we'd get a bell curve, right, a normal distribution. And so what we're really looking at is the tail end, right, the poor performance. So it depends where you set your cutoff. You can set it at 5%. You can cut it off at 7%, 10%, et cetera. So in the United States, it depends what state you live in. So a, a, a lot of people might ask you, though, to what extent is this, and I'm going to get to this in a second, your connection with genes, but a lot of people might think, uh, well, isn't this a lot about what your home environment is? Now, lots of people are on screens. I've got kids who are reading later now than kids are having trouble because they're kind of missing a window when you know some of the formative connections are made about reading because they're watching a lot of videos. I mean, how is it that you're able to identify this as as what's actually mechanistically you know inherited or or biologic? Versus, you know, then you've got all other things. Some people may have trouble with eyesight or uh, other kinds of causes that are making it hard for them to read. So how do you disentangle that? And when you come up with those numbers, what, what percent do you think is actually, you know, medically driven? That is sort of biologically driven as opposed to the environment and, and behavioral. So um, what we say is that the heritability is a range between roughly 47 and 82%. That seems it's pretty really precise, by the way. <laughs> It's, 
well, this is rapid fire, right? So <laughs> it's really, and so those are consistent with Alzheimer's, mm. schizophrenia. In fact, the only wow. things really probably greater than that are autism, which is probably amongst the 90%. So we're talking about heritability. That's across a population. What I'm telling you is, is that, and, and I generally think of it in somewhere closer to, closer to 80%, is that, is that 80% of our reading performance is because of our genes and only a small part wow. environmental. How do we know that? Because of those twin and family studies wow. that I was talking about. And if you look at those fa- family and twin studies, and especially in twins, when you can control for environment, not perfectly, but pretty good, you can, that's how people finally determine that environment is actually a smaller piece than the total genetic oh, yeah, piece. I never imagined that. I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna, let me get one more rapid fire, Howie, then I'm gonna bounce back to you, because there's just one other question I had that was sort of on the foundational side. So does this vary by language? So you've got Chinese, which is more pictorial, you've got you know, letters. So does dyslexia vary in different kinds of languages? So people thought that's the case, but it actually is not. And if you think about it intuitively, it makes sense that Homo sapiens, we use the same mechanism and pathways in our brains to process both verbal and written language. So it is true that the Eastern languages um, are more iconographic or pictorial, as you say. That's absolutely true. But if you, we, we spent a lot of time in China, and the prevalence of dyslexia is about the same as everywhere else in the world. And in fact, um, in a recent paper from Hong Kong, they also identified DCDC2 as associated with reading performance. And those children speak Japanese. So in, in the early reports, I think in the 70s, the thought was, well, there were different pathways, but in fact, they're not. And so as we see the imaging studies come through now uh, of, the, of, the last, of the last five years, we're using the same exact pathways, the same parts of our brain. And, and that, their speaking is normal. It's just the reading. Yeah. Those yeah. It's... So it typically, um, with, to be in our studies, you got to be smart, right? You have to, we use an IQ cutoff. So this is not wow. intellectual development problems. These, these people are smart. These kids are smart. In fact, girls are really smart. And that's the problem with identifying dyslexia in girls because they hide. They hide, especially in the early grades. Mm-hmm. Boys in early grades, they act out. You find yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but girls hide. There's, you know, one of the things from the Lexinome project that was striking to me was that over the years, the students continue to track. Once they have the gene, they, they don't suddenly improve, they continue to track. But one of the objectives of the project is to figure out what interventions might work for these populations. Can you tell our audience a little bit about like, what are the interventions that might work, that do work, and, and what's the hope for these populations? So that's a great question. Um, Interventions do work, Howie, uh, but there's a narrow window. And the window is somewhere between first and early fifth grade, maybe as late as sixth grade. If you find a child, you can identify a child who's struggling with reading in the early primary grades, and you offer them an intense, long intervention. I'm talking about 90, 90 to 110, 120 hours over the course of a single year. So that means pulling them out of class for probably every day for an hour in small groups um, and, um, and do that for a, a year. About, about almost 80% of first graders, second graders, and third graders can be brought up to grade level reading. And wow. if you retest them two years after completing the intervention, 
it's sustained. They'll still be reading at grade level. But if you misidentify, if you don't identify the kids and you pick them up in high school, then the response to intervention hits maybe 25%, maybe 30%. So the window of plasticity is early on. And so that's why it's so important to identify these kids early. And most of the paper, pencil, or computer-based ways that we do this are not very sensitive. You think about it for a minute. You have to do some reading. You have to have some reading skills in order order to be tested. So you can't really, kindergarten is sort of out. They, They don't do so great. You can get some language stuff, but not really reading stuff. First and second grade, not so great. They get better in fourth, fifth grade, but you're coming, you're moving out of the window when intervention works best. So the idea here with genetics would be to deploy on a large scale a genetic screen to identify children at risk and get them into intervention early when it really works, instead of wasting money and time when finally picking the kids up in high school. And there's some estimates that maybe 50% of kids with reading disability or dyslexia are not picked up even until they hit high school, if they make it. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. What, what percent you thought? So 50 percent of my hunch is there's also health equity issues in here, too, that, that you know, who gets picked up. And, and so, you know, it's sort of an added disadvantage of you've got social determinant issues. And then if kids have reading, is that is that what you found in in the research? Well, what we what we have always strived to do was to be in the community. So as you know, Yale, Harlan doesn't have a lab school. So we've done our research in New Haven Public Schools. And because I should, that's going to be pretty representative. If you look at the demographics, pretty representative broadly of the United States. So I think that's a good place to go. So we didn't really address that, but we did address that it's well known that all the genetic studies of reading and language, et cetera, have, have always traditionally been done in European American kids mm. and kids European ancestry, white kids. And so there really was no genetic data. So that's why, as Howie mentioned in the opener, the grad study really hit only Hispanic American kids and African American kids. And our Lexino project is more heavily weighted towards that because that's what's represented in New Haven Public Schools. And so that's what we have. So is there an equity issue? Absolutely, there's an equity issue. Um, it, it has to do with economics, has to do with location, has to do with the schools are structured, but it's real and it's there. Yes. Is there a clue anyone listening should be thinking about that tips them to say, like, maybe we should be referred to someone like you? Yeah. Um, well, they don't want to come to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last thing anybody ever needs is a neonatologist. <laughs> but, but what I would say is I think one of the biggest clues is language. So so we know that children have a, a, a very regular, consistent developmental timeline for acquisition of language. We know, for example, that by 12 months, most kids are doing you know, single words, assigning that single word to a meaning. By two years, 24 months, they're putting two words together. Um, by two and a half, it's actually more complex, more, maybe whole sentences or word phrases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a class of kids, and, and the frequency is about 6%, that have something called developmental language impairment. We used to call it specific language impairment. Basically, these are kids that otherwise attain their developmental milestones, but don't talk. And they may put off speaking until they're two, three, four, sometimes five years of age. By the way, speech pathology is really, really helpful for this. So for for families that have that. But what's interesting is about a third or so of those kids 
will go on to have a true reading disability or dyslexia by the time they hit a complex curriculum late in first, early in second grade, a third. And if you go backwards, if you go to kids that you've identified, say, in third, fourth, fifth grade, and you ask their parents, what was the language history? But they'll tell you about a third of those kids actually had a history of delayed onset in language. And that's so fascinating because you're, ta- you're saying that you were saying before these are separate, the speaking and the reading. But these kids are, who are delayed speakers actually then end up having reading. But the kids who are, who are delayed readers, maybe that's not, that's just, that's not an, as much an issue. What I'm saying is that there's shared genetic effects. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we know this. So a third of the kids with language impairment actually go on to have reading and reading. And if you look at that, there are some people who said that language and reading are almost on a, a, a continuum. There are separate processes and there are separate genes. So it's not all the same genes, but, but, but they do share some. And there is a very strong relationship between auditory processing, right? How we understand each other, how we're having this very complex discussion right now how we understand each other, and, and how we read, and how we decode and understand what we're reading and process that. They are definitely related. They're not the same. And so, and that's totally different to how we speak. So how we express ourselves, you know, the, the physical motion of, of how we, you know, use our cranial nerve to, um, to actually articulate words. That's, that's separate again. Well, the other problem is, uh, is that a lot of kids will be comorbid. So about a third of kids will have more than one learning disability. So they may have attention in reading, or they may have language in reading, or there's these sorts of things. And so it makes it a very, very challenging thing for schools and for parents. Oh, so interesting. Can, can I ask you, you know, we um, before we started the podcast, we had a conversation and uh, you're welcome not to answer this, by the way, but can I ask it anyway? <laughs> You faced sort of a existential question at the beginning of your research career about what direction to go, and you really weren't sure of what to do. And so you asked the person who preceded you, can you, can you give us a little quick summary of that conversation? Because I found that fascinating, and I think people should know this. Sure. Um, quickly, as you mentioned in the opener, is that um, I came to Yale to do residency training in pediatrics. And uh, as a young male, um, I became interested in neonatology. Neonatology is intense. It's fast. You get to do procedures. It's nice. But along the way, I, um, I, I learned that actually this whole idea of doing science is really kind of a cool thing. And so I decided that during fellowship, I was going to incorporate uh, science. And so I went into Jim Jameson's lab for two years in cell biology. And while I was in Jim's lab, I happened to meet some people from Sherm Weissman's lab. And... <laughs> was very interested in the kind of things and cloning that they were doing. It was relatively new, and I was really interested in it. So I went to talk to Sherman, and um, I had no idea what he was talking about. Because Sherman was inventing many of the methodologies that were ultimately going to be used in the Human Genome Project. But clearly, I respected who he was and the kind of accomplishments that he'd been doing it by that time. The person who preceded me in the lab at that time was a, a guy by the name of Francis Collins. And as you know... Francis became ultimately the head of the Human Genome Project for the NIH and the head of the NIH. But in those days, he was just Francis Collins, who had come here to do fellowship training in, uh, go to medical school, do residency and fellowship in genetics. 
And so I knew him clinically and I knew he preceded me in the lab. So I gave him a call. He was at his first job, I think it was at University of Michigan. And he kindly answered, of course, because he was just kind of a regular guy then. He wasn't. It was before he cloned. Still, regular, he's still a pretty regular guy. <laughs> he is. Yeah. He still plays the guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. if he drives his motorcycle anymore, yeah. but I, I hope not. <laughs> but, you know, he's, you know, and he said, you know, Jeff, it, it's a, there are lots of good labs at Yale you might think about. But, I, you know, I think Sherman Weissman is the smartest guy I ever met. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I did know I was going to jump into the deep end of the pool. And I always thought that, you know, it's, if I'm going to do something, I might as well go all out. And so that's what we did. And, you know, I stayed there for seven years. I didn't really have a science background. And so I was at the bench for seven years. Sherman was wonderful. It was a great environment. It was very open. He's a very creative guy, as you probably know if you've ever spoken to him. And it, it worked out really, really well. I mean, I didn't then go into reading disability. He put me on more of a conventional project eventually got scooped by a private company. But I had advantages that we were able to use and, and begin to address this whole idea of learning disabilities and the genetics of learning disabilities. So that's kind of how, when people meet me, this is what they think. They think, oh yeah, pediatrician, he likes kids, you know, reading is really important. Yeah, that's all true, but that's not how it happened. It happened with mm-hmm. a competitive edge in molecular genetics. By that time, Working with Sherman, I had cloned the entire short arm of chromosome six. This is before the Human Genome Project. And so when we got scooped for hemochromatosis, which happened by a private company, I said, well, what am I going to do now? And I looked around and there was the reading disability stuff. And so that's how we started going after it. It wasn't, yes, I care about kids. It's absolutely true. But that's not my clinical background. It was because of the science. And the science is very cool. So appreciate you Thank taking you the time so to be much. with us. Yeah, it's really, yeah. Talks this, a lot in a short This is period. amazing. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have you back if you, if you uh, can spare more time. We'd love to have you back. Well, that was good. I really uh, learned a lot in that, in that discussion, Howie, but let's, uh, let's pivot to your side. So what's on your mind this week? Yeah. So I want to actually stick to that theme a little bit, and I'm going to talk about my own genetics, which you know, I'm, I'm an open book and, I, and you and I have been friends and colleagues for most of my professional career. And you know a lot about my own medical history. You've seen me suffer uh, two catastrophic surgical emergencies that were at least partly, if not fully due to what I have believed to be one of the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Um, and I have a vast array of symptoms that seem to align with one or another of the subtypes of Ehlers-Danlos And I've known that I've had some type of collagen problem since I was about 18 years of age. Uh, But this great story was published in Stat News about a few days ago, uh, and we'll link that to the website, that describes other similar people who have suffered from one of these subtypes. It resonated a lot with me. Now, the title is Revenge of the Gaslit Patients. And I personally have never felt particularly gaslit by this, maybe because I'm in medicine, uh, but it was always difficult to tell people that I had this constellation of symptoms. And by the way, many of them seemed completely unrelated to collagen, but that it was likely due to this disease, but I had no proof of that. And I'd been tested for many genetic diseases. They always came back negative. I had specialists at Yale, at the Mayo Clinic, at Johns Hopkins. Those specialists were always very encouraging, reminding me that most such patients don't uh, fit neatly into a genetic profile, but it nonetheless was challenging to explain to other doctors or other individuals. So 
about six months ago, for the first time, my decoded genome started to actually show positive findings that seemed to put me closer to an actual diagnosis, much as is alluded to in the article that I referenced. At the moment, the best that they can say about me is that I likely have something that we call Ehlers-Danlos Classical-like syndrome, which is one of the 13 subtypes that are now identified. Uh, there are sufficient other abnormal genes that they've identified that could help us refine this further uh, in the years ahead. Um, I bring this up not so much to tell people my own personal medical history, but to say that many, many of our listeners have unique symptoms or arrays of symptoms or are predisposed to certain conditions or one or another, or even predisposed to be well-treated or poorly treated by certain medications that are often uh, written off, people can be described as psychosomatic or symptoms that are psychosomatic. But as we heard today, the genetic revolution is just revving up. And I hope it brings comfort and most of all diagnosis and treatment for so many people who live with chronic conditions and may or may not feel like they are gaslit. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that we're on the cusp of being able to illuminate the underlying cause and, and help to categorize and affirm, you know, what a lot of people have. They know they've got something important. They just don't know what it is. It, it, it hasn't met the patterns that we've seen of disease in the past that our, our descriptions of disease, I think, will evolve substantially. Right now, we're, we've inherited a taxonomy, a description of disease that's, you know, 100 years old, probably in many cases. And we're, I think, about to reform our understanding of disease in the way we describe it. One thing I want to ask you, though, Howie, is because some of our listeners still may not be familiar with this syndrome. Who, who is, who is Ehlers Danlos? I mean, who are? Yes. What, what, what is that? And and why is it called that? And you know, you want so to just explain a that a little bit? Sure. So it's a collection of diseases. Like I said, there's 13 genetically identified subtypes, and then there's another catch-all category. Uh, the two names are two different doctors that started to describe the syndromes many, many decades ago. Um, the worst of them is lethal in a relatively young age. I, in fact, have um, several friends and, and uh, with children who have the more lethal variants of this. Um, it can present with aortic rupture. It can look like Marfan syndrome. Uh, it can have very fragile skin, dislocating lenses and so on. I always believed that I had the hypermobile type, which is what was described in the article. And only now as- And hypermo hypermobile means? Means that I dislocate my shoulder very easily. I have flat feet, knock knees. I have a lot of other what we call stigmata or signs of this sort of hypermobility. You know me, I'm a very lanky person. That's a cl classic I'm feature. Very, very I have good a looking, very good looking. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I have a high arched palate. I have dental crowding. These are all very specific features of the hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos uh, syndrome. But we're learning so much about it. And much like Jeffrey Gruen said today, um, it's not typical Mendeleyan genetics. It's multiple different genes interacting on different chromosomes that ultimately lead to the syndrome. And I think that's what we're getting closer to. Wow. That's fascinating. And, and you know what, that's so nice of you to share that with us. It's uh, you know, it's not easy to talk about your own medical history, but I, I think it'll help others who are both experiencing what you may have experienced, but also to know that, that we're on the cusp of really some advances, which may give people 
Like, by the way, I'm doing a lot of work, as you know, with long COVID and post-viral syndrome. Yes, exactly. I that That's what I was this thinking is a of. similar area where we yeah. will begin to understand more and be able to help. And, and, and even long COVID is probably some combination of not just exposure to a virus, but some other factors that may include genetic predisposition. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a combo. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter for now. <laughs> I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I am fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Roland. Talk to you soon.